All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of A Voluntary View. Today, we've got a very special guest. I'm talking today with Bradley Thomas from EraseTheState.com. You guys might have heard of him. He does most of the writing over there at Erase the State, and he is also a contributing author at the Mises Institute and the Foundation for Economic Education. So he writes a lot of great stuff, a great advocate for liberty on Twitter as well, and we're happy to have him on the show today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Hey, it's our pleasure, our pleasure. So now I was wondering, everyone I think has a story of how they came to find out about liberty and champion it. No one, I think, uh, is born just thinking, oh, liberty, that's the way to go. There should be no state. <laughs> so what, what is your story? How did you come to be an yeah. advocate for liberty? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I'm certainly no exception uh, to that story. Uh, you know, grew up in a, a pretty apolitical household, really, just not wasn't something that was really discussed much. Um, and so as I, I started to grow up, I, you know, if anything, if you asked me, would have asked me about politics, I would have said, you know, I probably lean right, you know, typical kind of traditional conservative Republican. Um, just uh, if anything, at least their rhetoric of limited government appealed to me at the time. Um, and then I started growing up and, and getting into the real world and and started getting more and more disillusioned with this these choices we were presented with. You know, it was just R versus D as if that was the only choice uh, out there that was even potentially available for anybody. And, uh, um, you know, along that time, the, the Internet starts to come online and starts to flourish and you see more and more voices come out there. So I started getting more interested just in kind of politics in general, issues as well as philosophy. And I started stumbling across some some articles and, and some of these philosophies about libertarianism. And I thought, oh, well, this is pretty interesting. Um, you know, this was never really presented to me in school or in the mainstream media or anything like that. So there's actually people out there saying these things, you know, questioning the the moral authority of the state and and talking about, you know, not just limiting government, but substantially rolling back the size and scope of the government. And so from there, it was just a, a light switch that went on in my brain and say, I want to learn more about this because this just really makes sense. And and uh, really appeals to to my sense of just uh, that moral intuition of allowing people to live free and and for consent to be the basis for all of of social interactions. Uh, so that that's really what kind of put me down that path, and 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 then of course uh, you know started reading more and more books and discovering just what an amazing philosophy this is what an incredible history it has, some of the great thinkers um, that have really pioneered um, uh, this thought, and, and of course the Austrian economics piece of that as well, I was really drawn to that. So, uh, and, and then once you're exposed to something that, it, some of these ideas that excite you so much, you know, the next step naturally is then, I wanna talk to this about other people. I wanna let other people know about this amazing philosophy that so many people, once they learn about it, you know, I believe will really adapt, uh, you know, adopt. Um, so that's uh, was really the the motivating factor. Eventually, um, you know, starting my website erasethestate.com and and getting on Twitter and, and trying to just communicate these ideas and trying to take a lot of the lessons that helped me along my journey and trying to promote those 
uh, uh, narratives and messages to other people to, to hopefully bring other people into the, the Liberty camp. Wow. Fantastic. Fantastic. And I have to say it was, it was more or less the same for me. My parents were <clears throat> they're pretty strong Republicans. And so I just kind of grew up right leaning, you know, and did never question it until uh, similar. I started seeing some of the things that they were doing. Like that's, that's not what they said they were going to do when they got into office. And then I had some friends who were who were pretty strong libertarian anarchists, and they kept quoting these authors like Rand and Rothbard and Spooner and Mises. And I thought, whoa, these are these are good quotes. I like to read a lot, so I thought I gotta get some of these some books that these people have written. And then then it was just a snowball from there. I started reading more and more and. At first, some of it was, especially Rothbard and Spooner, it's like, whoa, this is, this is pretty radical. I'm not sure if I agree with this. You know, the state is enemy of the state and all of this. And then I started thinking about it more. And, no, no, they're right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and there's a, there's a certain lo- yeah, there's a certain logical consistency that, that you have to get to, you know, if, if you agree that using force and co- coercion uh, to, to compel people to do things is wrong, then look at the state. I mean, uh, not just the, the obvious uh, uh, injustices they bring about people, but the very uh, a method by which they attain resources, you know, taxation, that itself is a violation of, of people's individual rights and, and property rights. And if, if the government is, is established, they claim to protect people's rights, then how can we say they're doing that when their very mechanism of, of, of commandeering resources is a violation of our rights? So, you know, that's just really kind of that last tipping point of that logical consistency, taking, that, taking it that last step that really kind of brought me, you know, that the final way down to become a, 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 an arco uh, I'm sorry, an arco capitalist yeah, I think it was I think it was Hoppe who said something like uh, a coercively funded protection agency is a contradiction in terms. Right, <laughs> right, right. Yes, and it was just it was the logical consistency, especially like Spooner and Rothbard. It was just so logical. Like, how do you argue against against? You have to go on some kind of emotional tangent to distract from their actual argument in order to not accept it or so it seems to me but now having said that though it's not like there are a lot of people that are really strongly for liberty i find and austrian economics the whole deal but it's not always an obvious jump from that to voluntary charity i've seen you tweet uh, several times about how the voluntary aspect of charity is much better than the welfare state. So how did you come to the conclusion that liberty, Austrian economics, and charity were connected like that? Yeah, well, I think it's just a, a natural conclusion. I mean, the the main, at least in my mind, the main drawing point uh, of libertarianism is just the moral foundation of, of social interactions being consensual. And so you just take that and, and apply it to to charity and and helping those in need, those among us who are most in need, and just just say the only moral way we can do that is through voluntary uh, charity. You know this this forced 
um, welfare state where government forcibly takes from some people and gives to other people. Um, you know, again, the very mechanism of how they collect the revenue for the welfare state uh, is is immoral in my mind because it's collected by force. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then there's so many other reasons to favor charities, especially, you know, because charity then can become localized. I mean, you become active in your community, you become active in your local church. Um, so when it's localized, you can really tailor uh, uh, your giving and your time towards the actual needs of the people who are are in need, um, rather than this big, huge monolith you know, government bureaucratically run uh, welfare state where it just it's one size fits all. It just blankets and, and you know, just throws money out there at the problem, um, rife with fraud, of course, I might add. Um, and and so it, it just facilitates a lot of wasted resources because, you know, they're throwing money at people. Um, that may have specific needs that if you're their neighbor, if they're in your church, if they're in your community, you know, okay, maybe instead of a a welfare check, they just need some of my time. They need me to help fix something up around their house or something like that, or, or deliver meals to them, things of that nature. Whereas again, that's this cold bureaucratic welfare state just makes no differentiation between people's needs and just sends people's, you know, checks and and food stamps and, and everything regardless of their needs. So, you know, again, Number one, the main thing is just the, the voluntary nature of, of uh, you know, private charity versus the course of nature, nature of government. And then secondly, just what's which one is going to be more effective and efficient at actually meeting the needs of those people who, who need the help the most. Yeah. I couldn't couldn't agree more. And especially it made me think of uh, my wife, Sarah, she runs the education uh, initiative that we have ongoing to help especially homeschoolers and people who have never done homeschool uh, during all these government lockdowns and school shutdowns. Uh, They have no idea what to do and we're able to talk with them. Okay, so how old are your children? What kind of resources do you need? What are they interested in? And then we're able to get them supplies and help based on what they need specifically. Instead of, like you said, just a monolith distributing checks to people. So, and I really like what you said about the moral foundation of libertarianism. Because the, uh, the classic stereotype is uh, libertarians are just Republicans who like to smoke weed. <laughs> but there's an actual, an actual foundation there of what's right and what's wrong. And uh, charity helping other people is... A part of that, even if some people don't see it and choose to focus on you know, the pure anti-state aspects of things, but in order to help form a stable society in the absence of the state, I think that voluntary charity aspect is really important. Yeah, and, and voluntary charity you know, taps into that generosity within people guided by their conscience. You know, right, rather than this uh, again, this government manufactured uh, welfare state that I mean, let's face it, the politicians have an incentive to expand the welfare state because it makes more people dependent up upon the government. And then when it's time for re-election, the politicians can then say, "Oh well, my opponent wants to take away." your food stamps, want to take away your welfare check or your Medicaid and everything. So now it becomes more of a vote buying scheme versus 
uh, you know, a mechanism to truly deliver help to those in, in their time of need. And, and it uh, creates all these perverse incentives and welfare traps where people become trapped and dependent on welfare versus, you know, more of a temporary help for people in need to help them get back up on their feet. So it's, it's very uh, a, a debilitating cycle sometimes when, when people become so dependent on the government and then it becomes politicized and, and uh, that just causes more division and conflict in society versus the, the uh, voluntary consensual nature of private charity. That's true. And as, as our assistant director, Justin, points out often, helping people yourself, it just feels good. Right. Almost, uh, he describes it as kind of like a rush, but it, it feels nice to help someone, whether it's because uh, you feel better about yourself or you feel better because they're not in that pain and distress anymore it feels good and it kind of makes you into a better person because then you're more willing to help other people and to make the world a little bit better without having to be forced to. I think that's a big thing that often gets lost, especially on the the left side of things politically, is they think that people just aren't going to help anyone if the government doesn't. But I don't think that's true at all. I think people really like to help, but they've, first of all, they've kind of been disincentivized by the fact that the government does take so much of their money and wastes it, as we see. And so that's what they think, what they think charity is. And then because they think, oh, some, someone else is doing that, that's what the government is doing, so, so I don't have to do anything. I pay my taxes, but it's a very, and we can see just from that, it's a very, very different mindset from I want to help someone and then I feel good about it to the uh, government takes my money, so that's fine. Yeah, yeah, and the government welfare uh, state, you know, really takes away your ability and, and what I would consider your right to choose how to support those in need and, and you know by how much and, and whether it's your time or your money or, or other types of resources you know that that choice is taken away from you every time you you send in your tax dollars because that means you have fewer resources left to give to those in need and to make those decisions over how to best help you know your neighbor the, the people in your community that need it mm-hmm. that's a good point too the uh, the money that the government takes goes to uh, to help whatever the government happens to want. <clears throat> but if you are particularly passionate about uh, saving the whales, that's a classic one, then <laughs> you can donate your, your time, your money to helping out to save the whales. If um, like crippled children, a classic like Tiny Tim, if that's your passion, that's where you can put your money, your time, your resources, feeding the hungry, that's what you can focus on homeless assistance, you know, whatever you can tailor it to your interests. And then there's more passion behind that instead of the government takes money and uses it for something you don't want. Then that generates anger and conflict, which is the opposite of what we want. Right. Yeah. So true. So true. And, and also through government programs, through government welfare programs, um, it, it tends to uh, build up a sense of entitlement uh, uh, by the recipient. 
Um, mm. Because it's cold and faceless, it's not their neighbor helping them out, which is going to generate much more gratitude. Um, because it's this huge, gigantic federal government, uh, cold bureaucracy. Oh, the government's got you know a four trillion dollar budget. Whatever. What what does it mean for them to give me a few extra dollars in this welfare check? Um, it, it, yeah, it hardens people, the recipients. Uh, with this sense of entitlement versus versus gratitude, which I think would be, you know, a sense of gratitude would be much stronger if that charity was coming from people voluntarily and especially localized people they know they run into at the grocery store in their neighborhood or at their church. Um, so again, it just sows more division um, and angst uh, between people in society. Absolutely. And I think on, on a local level too, if someone has been helped by charity, they're much more likely to then pass that on to someone else who they see who needs right. help, less likely to, to turn them away. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of, kind of a, a circle that keeps perpetuating and makes the world a better place. Now I've got to, I've got to bring up Twitter because that's how I found out about you looking at your tweets from the VIA Twitter account. <clears throat> And I've, I really like your tweets because they tend to be kind of short and punchy, but also, also substantive and kind of make you think. In fact, I think you have an ebook that's just a compilation of some of your classic <laughs> tweets. I thought that was pretty neat. But I mean, there's one. Uh, looking at your website, there's one here. A big regulatory state is the best friend of major corporations. An unhampered competitive market economy is their greatest enemy. And that's the kind of thing where you might like start to think about it and be like, huh, yeah, I think that's right. And so how do you, like, is there a, a formula you use to come up with these tweets or is it just as you think of them? Yeah, how does this, how does it come about? Yeah, I mean, and, and that uh, that reaction you had, that that aha, that huh moment. I mean, that's really what I'm going for with a lot of my tweets, you know. And and I, and I say that because these things that I'm tweeting out, uh, when I first stumbled across those ideas, you know, years ago, you know, that's the response I had. So I'm trying to just kind of, you know, pass it along to more people. Uh, but yeah, coming up with those. It's, uh, you know, Twitter is really interesting because it really forces you to discipline, um, you know, how you communicate your ideas because of that, that uh, limited character count, limited word count. And, uh, I, and, and one of my favorite writers is Thomas Sowell. And one of the things that he is so great at is an economy of words, right? He, he says a lot of things using few words. And so I think, I, I, you know, I have to give a lot of credit to him because I've read a number of his books and, and um you know, I just kind of think in ways, well, how can I, you know, I, I think of a point that I'm trying to make. And then I say, well, how can I say it in as few as words as possible? Um, you know, because sometimes I'll start writing out a tweet. They'll start getting a little lengthy. I'm like, oh, this is way too wordy. You know, people aren't going to want to get through this. <laughs> um, so, so you know, you got to go back and try to. So you really just want to take a minute and reflect and say, okay, what really is the purpose of this tweet? What is that aha moment that that, you know what you want people to kind of ponder and think about or get that reaction like, oh, that, that, hmm, you know, I never thought about it like that before. You know, what is that key? Just kind of take away one takeaway message. And then how can I convey that in as few as words as possible? 
Um, and it's just a matter of just kind of practicing and disciplining and, you know, reading, um, you know, other writers who are really good at that. And, and again, I would, I would say Thomas Sowell is probably the best example that I could think of. Mm. Yeah. You mentioned it. There are like his, his classic one is, I think is what is your fair share of what someone else has earned? Right. That's a classic one. And it sounds similar to, to what, what memes do. They kind of condense the message and the situation. And in the meme case, it's a picture and maybe a few words, but just using text. A similar aim, but slightly different format. Hmm. Very nice. So, but then on the other end of the spectrum, you also write articles where economy of words is not necessarily the issue because you don't have a character limit. And some of your stuff is, is really good, obviously published with uh, the Mises Institute and the Foundation for Economic Education, and it's really quality stuff. So do you have any advice for aspiring liberty writers? Yeah, I mean, just just start. Just start writing. Um, you know, it's so easy these days. You can you can start a blog, a website. Uh, I think uh, what's that one? Uh, uh, Substack. You can start posting articles on that. Start an account on that. Um, and, and just don't expect it to be perfect. Uh, you know, the first times out. I mean, I know I was when I reflect on some of the stuff I, I started writing years ago. It was awful. <laughs> I mean, I, I'll admit to it. You know, learn from your mistakes. Um, you know, utilize people around you who you trust, who can give you feedback. You know, write up an article or a blog post and, and share it with those folks before you publish it and say you know what do you think of this how can it be how can I word it better how can I this is the message this is the narrative I'm trying to advance with this is it coming through clearly uh, with what I'm saying um, and uh, I, I would I would also mention that uh, even in articles there is you do want to be kind of mindful of of a word count on that as well <laughs> because sometimes you can just start um, uh, rambling on and, and going into non sequiturs and, and you're really going to lose the reader. So you need, even, even writing articles, you need to be really focused about, you know, what is the purpose of this communication? What am I trying to convey and how can I convey that message in as few as words as possible? Um, I would also really emphasize just that, that people are, are driven by emotions, right? So, so you know, the moral appeal, the more you can lead with that moral appear, appeal, the more you're going to get people's attention, the more you're going to get them to stop and think. Um, if you're if you're leading your article by throwing a bunch of statistics and data at people, that's not going to be very persuasive. You got to start to reach them with that moral appeal. Um, and then if you want to supplement your arguments with some data, come and come in with that later. But uh, you really got to start to nudge people with that, those questions that are going to touch on the emotions and what are, what's morally important to them huh interesting interesting thing about about humans because i think what sets us apart from uh, most animals is that we're so good at thinking but it seems like we kind of have to feel the emotions and that moral argument before we actually start thinking about something humans yeah yeah and, there, and there's a great book about this uh, by jonathan Haidt uh, called the righteous mind and he really talks it really lays it out and really talks about um, that, especially even the difference between left and right, and which kind of moral appeals um, are, are most important to them, 
And so depending on the audience you're writing to, even you can kind of uh, get in, you know, because you don't want to force someone who's from the left or from the right to to abandon their identity of what's important to them. You know, say for a progressive, you know, they they really want to help out the low income people who they feel are oppressed. Well, OK, don't make them abandon that. But then you can also make an argument about how government welfare programs actually hurts those people. At, at the bottom of the income rungs, um, how, you know, Federal Reserve, uh, that might get a little bit wonky, but, you know, Federal Reserve might if people who care about income inequality. Uh, I mean, if you care about income inequality, the number one culprit in that is the Federal Reserve monetary policy. So, you know, people, you know, don't force people to abandon what's important to them, but make that appeal within those boundaries. And, and, and that's how you're going to get their attention and, and uh, uh, start to get them to want to learn more. Mm. That's a really good point when writing and, and argument in general, if you come full on against what someone believes, chances are they're just going to shut down right away and not even listen to what you have to say. But if you acknowledge that what what they feel, what they care about is important, but I think there's a better way to go about it, then they're more likely to at least consider what you have to say. Right, right, exactly right. I think we have a big advantage of that in the liberty movement generally and in voluntarism and voluntary charity specifically because of the pathos involved there with people who are hungry or suffering. There's a lot of, like you say, a lot of emotion and a moral argument to be made. And then we can pull in the logic and morality of how voluntary charity is more moral and more effective than the welfare state and government charity. Fascinating. Well, thanks so much for being here and talking with me about liberty, voluntarism, charity, writing. Do you have any, any final thoughts, stuff you want to toss out? Uh, yeah, well, I just wanted to, uh, you know, thank you so much for this opportunity. I, I really appreciate it, and I would encourage uh, folks listening. You can check out my website, erasethestate.com. Uh, also, that that book you had mentioned earlier uh, is tweetingliberty.com. It, it's a book of my tweets. It's on a, a bunch of different topics that that uh, I'm sure your listeners would find interesting, ranging from, you know, socialism to identity politics to economics and. Uh, political authority and all those kind of things. So just, uh, again, really happy to have this opportunity to have this discussion today and um, uh, appreciate your time. Oh, thank you, Bradley. Thank you. It's been it's been a lot of fun discussing things with you and look forward to seeing what you tweet and what you write next. <laughs> thank you so much.